All right, uh, turn in your Bibles or your Bible apps to Nahum. After Micah, before Habakkuk. Um, each week, um, my intention, or who has, who's ever preaching, our intention in preaching is to simply lay before you um, God's Word and to say, here's what it says, here's what it means, here's how it applies to us. Um, it is not to spout off opinions and, and uh, my thoughts or ideas, but to simply say, here's what God's Word says. Let's consider it, um, consider its meaning. And ultimately, our goal is to humble ourselves before that uh, and, and not just receive information and, and grow and get all this knowledge, but ultimately so that we might um, come to know God and not just know things about God, but know him and love him and, and delight in him. All throughout the Bible, we are told to rejoice in the Lord. Um, and God, that's God's desire for us, and that's God, what God equips us to do. So that's true today as well. We're going to look at the book of Nahum. Um, there's some, uh, some amazing stuff in this book. There's some perhaps difficult stuff in this book. Uh, to get us going, um, we, we have to kind of work through a little bit of stuff, and I want to do that by, um, by giving an illustration, kind of a thought uh, experiment, if you will. So, in the spring of 1945, Berlin, in Nazi-controlled Germany, was uh, being surrounded by the Allied forces. And uh, the Russians were coming from the east, the Americans were coming from the west. By May 9th, Germany had uh, unconditionally surrendered. Um, the war that had been going on for about six years, which had started with Germany invading Poland, was finally coming to a close, at least in this arena. So that's the basic context. Now I want you to imagine this event, Germany surrendering, from three different angles. And uh, bear with me, this is going somewhere. Um, this may be difficult to do uh, for various reasons, but imagine this event from three different angles. And not just imagine it, try to feel the weight of this momentous time in history from three different angles. The first angle is that uh, um, of a Jew in a concentration camp in Germany. And so you begin to hear the news that the Allied forces are coming in. Uh, they, are, uh, they have taken over Berlin. They are approaching Hitler's compound. Um, this is about, this is the best news you could hear, right? Like you haven't had good news in six years. You haven't allowed yourself to, to hope in many years. And, uh, and this is great news, because the defeat of the Nazis means, means your rescue, means your salvation, means your vindication from the oppressive and evil people and systems that were set against you and your people. And so these allied forces coming in are a source of uh, refuge and victory and relief and great comfort, and, and you are about to celebrate. Second position I want you to try to imagine this event from, um, again, bear with me, I want you to try to att attempt to imagine this event from the, the eyes of a member of the Nazi party or a Nazi sympathizer. This is going somewhere. I'm not actually trying to get you to sympathize with the Nazis. So there you are, living in Berlin, 
you think you're on the right side of history here. You're right, you think you're on the right side of the war. You think that you're making the world a better place, that Germany will be the greatest nation in the world, strong, powerful, pure, devoid of any weakness. I mean, you even have scientific justification for this. Your nation is on the cutting edge of science, including the science of death. And so when you get word that the Allied forces are coming in, it is a fearful thing. Um, this will likely mean the death of many of your loved ones. This is a great judgment. Your home could be bombed. This great idea of a nation that you have is being exterminated by these enemies. And so to you, this is horrible news. It's a great judgment. It's horror and agony. Third, I want you to imagine this event as neutral Switzerland or perhaps as a representative, representative Swiss citizen. So just a bit of history. Switzerland took a position of armed neutrality for both world wars. Um, they, uh, during World War II, there were sympathizers to both sides in Switzerland. So there was a Swiss, Swiss Nazi party, but uh, on the other hand, the, the, the press was pretty critical of, of the Nazis. Uh, not surprisingly, Switzerland was a popular place for refugees. It bordered Germany, and so a lot of people uh, went there for refuge, for refuge. However, the Swiss policy was only to only grant full asylum to, um, to those escaping uh, political persecution. Uh, they wouldn't grant asylum for threats due to race, religion, or ethnicity. So amazingly, during the whole span of World War II, Switzerland gr only granted asylum to 245 people. A lot more refugees came in, but they weren't allowed to work or hold jobs or, or any of that stuff. And so if you're Switzerland, or perhaps a representative of Switzerland during this time, perhaps you feel neither the comfort and relief of a Jew or of, of those many groups that the Nazis were doing horrible things to, but neither do you feel the dread and fear of the Nazis. Perhaps you tell yourself that you, abstain, you, ab, you sit in this kind of objective outside view. You don't take sides. Surely we can find a diplomatic solution to this war. Surely the atrocities are overblown. Things are not as bad as they say. I realize this is a very uncomfortable scenario, but here's why I bring it up. As we read through the Minor Prophets, we hear a lot about God entering into his world and bringing judgment on wicked and evil people and nations, on people who both ignore and despise and plot against God and his purposes, and on people who also uh, oppressively, violently um, oppress other peoples, including God's people. And I think our tendency at times is to hear of this intervention by God, this, these judgments of God, from a Switzerland point of view, as if we were merely a detached outside observer, and we neither feel the great comfort and relief and salvation that for whom God's vengeance and judgment is working salvation and relief, for whom God himself is a refuge and strength, and then nor do we feel the terror of having our evil hearts and actions and excuses exposed and judged. Perhaps we feel a little bit of either, but really the full weight of neither. 
Again, maybe we think we're being objective in this. Well, the situation's not that bad. The world is really not that bad of a place. God, aren't you kind of overreacting here? You're a bit strong in your responses. You seem to take sin pretty seriously. And what this does, if we are God's people, is keep us from experiencing what we are supposed to experience when we read these things. That all of God's power and sovereignty and authority and judgment and jealousy is actually working good for us. Is actually the source of our comfort and hope and rest and security. Instead, we kind of sit back and judge it. Isn't there another way? Again, none of us occupy the position of Switzerland towards God. And we can't. None of us are simply a detached, innocent, objective judge of God, um, one with perhaps more in tune sense of justice and kindness than God. No, we are either his beloved people who are much of the time beat up and battered and weakened and oppressed by sin and suffering, both from without and from within, and God is our refuge and our stronghold. He is our, our victory, our conqueror over everything that would harm us, even our own sin. Or, we are dead set in opposing and rejecting and ignoring God and dead set on oppressing others. This may not be the image that we portray. Maybe outside we, we look all put up and put together and we look like decent moral people. But in our hearts, we, as we all know, we use kindness simply to, to get our way, to build ourselves up and get what we want out of our life. And if this is our position towards God and towards others, the same vengeance that is good news for God's people is fearful news for us. If we are set against God and set against God's kindness and mercy and truth, then God is set against us. If we continually and finally refuse to turn and come into his mercy and find his goodness, he will not be a refuge for us. It won't matter how protected or secure or safe we think we are in our comforts and pleasures and prosperity and happiness. So, you and I are not Switzerland. In fact, we can never be Switzerland. And this tendency to try to take this kind of neutral, detached, objective position and the failure of it needs to be exposed if we are to understand the book of Nahum, as well as much of the Bible. And not just understand it intellectually, but to feel the weight of it. Because it, Nahum's name actually means comfort, and this is actually a book of comfort for God's people. Although you wouldn't know that reading the first few verses, or much of it, as, as we'll see. Maybe, at least not right off the bat. God intends to be a great comfort and relief to his people. And at times, he, he does this by acting as a divine warrior fighting against everything that would harm us, enemies both outside and inside. Okay, book of Nahum. We're going to ask two questions to work through this. Who is God to his enemies? And who is God to his people? 
And I, I think this is something that we haven't reflected on enough and that I haven't reflected on enough. This, the different dispositions that God has towards, the, the radically different positions that God has towards those who are his, which is wonderful, immensely good, comforting, and towards those who continually and finally refuse to come to him. So first, who is God to his enemies? Let's read the first six verses of Nahum. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Now, you may remember that we've recently talked about the Ninevites in the city of Nineveh. A couple weeks ago, uh, this is the city that Jonah is sent to as well. And in Jonah, God had pity on the Ninevites. He said to Jonah, the very last verse of the book of Jonah says, should I not pity these Ninevites? And through Jonah's preaching, God um, gives this pagan nation and a wicked nation at that time as well, uh, the chance to repent and to turn. And, And they do so immediately and wholeheartedly. And God relents of the disaster that he had said he would bring on them for their wickedness. And you might remember that Jonah doesn't like this. Jonah's pretty upset about this. God's grace to, God's giving a chance to these wicked and evil and godless people upsets Jonah. He's offended by God's mercy. We're now about 100 to 150 years after that event, as Nahum is speaking or writing, and there are little to no signs of that former repentance and commitment to God among the Ninevites. Uh, both Nahum and, and, and other places in the Bible and other places just in history outside of the Bible tell us of the wickedness of these people. Um, we actually know this pretty well from history. So Nahum describes them in a few ways. He says, they plot against their Lord, uh, against the Lord. It is a bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to pray. In their idolatrous worship, they, he says they are like prostitutes with graceful and deadly charms who betrays nations with their whorings and peoples with their charms. So they have all of these gods that they worship, uh, these idols, and they not only do that, but they, they bring in other nations to worship their gods. Nahum says they commit unceasing evil. They are vile. They are plunderers. Um, for several decades around this time, the city of Nineveh was the largest city in the world. Um, one description I, I found of it said that there was an eight-mile-long wall around the inner part of the city. There was a much longer wall around the outer part of the city. Uh, and this wall was 100 feet tall and was wide enough for three chariots and horses side by side to be traveling around it. It's a huge city. And it became huge and it became very wealthy in large part because they 
They plundered and conquered and oppressed all of the other peoples around them, including Judah and, and Israel, southern Judah and, and northern Israel, as, we, as we've been seeing. And they will eventually uh, be the ones who conquer and bring into exile Israel in the north. Uh, one commentator writes this, he says, To Nineveh were sent gifts of far-off tribute, heads of vanquished enemies, crown princes as hostages, beautiful princesses as concubines. Their, their recalcitrant captives were flayed, obstinate opponents crushed to death by their own sons. The Nineveh against which the prophet Nahum thunders divine denunciation had become the concentrated center of evil, the capital of crushing tyranny, the epitome of cruelest torture. And so this is a bad city. Uh, their, their evil is is both vertical against God and horizontal against people. They're, they they just dismiss God, they actively plot against God and his purposes, and then they're in, incredibly uh, oppressive to, to all other people. And, and they apparently have no pity, uh, no pity, no remorse in this. They, they're thriving, they're, they're rich. Why should they change their ways? Now I think we need to stop here and consider the kind of heart and disposition that leads to such weak, weak, uh, wickedness. Um, lest we just think that this, oh, this is one city kind of way off in the distant past and distant part of the world. Thank God that there's no more people like that in the world. Thank God that no city would ever become like that again. I think we tend to underestimate the entrenched hard-heartedness and wickedness and commitment to evil in the world. We... We tend to think that most people, if given the chance, are, are, are decent people. Um, perhaps they need a little more education or opportunities or money, but most people would be basically good if given the chance. Um, I would just ask you to consider your own heart. If you know Christ, consider your own heart before you, God had caught your heart. Do you think that is the direction you were headed in? Um, I know for myself, before God captured my heart around the eighth grade, I was not headed in a basically good direction. Uh, sure, outwardly I may have appeared to be uh, a decent human being and to care for people, but inwardly um, I was not. I, I pursued personal happiness and satisfaction no matter what the cost. If there was benefit to gain from being nice to people, then I'd be nice to people, but it was all selfish at heart. In a million ways, we plot against the Lord. We reject his rule, and we set up our own little kingdoms in opposition to him. Every time we disobey him, every time we love something or someone more than him, every time we use others for our personal ends, every time we are more concerned about our advancement and happiness than the glory and will of God and the good of others, we are plotting against the Lord and his purposes. And these can seem small and harmless at, the time, at, at times, but they eventually lead, if unchecked, to the great atrocities that have marred this world from the beginning and that still mar this world. Sometimes uh, we, we can live in a very um, kind of safe and serene place here, kind of detached from I-5 and detached from Seattle and big cities and detached from other countries, but it doesn't take long reading the news to realize that... Um, there are places in the world that perhaps don't reach to the level of Nineveh, but 
are, are not that far away. What we're talking about here is not simply sin. Everyone sins. What we're talking about is being set against God, failing to turn to him, failing to respond to his grace, failing to make much of him, and just continuing down this path. And this is who we are apart from God's gracious intervention. Back to our question. Who is God to these people, to those who continually and finally refuse to come to him? What does God say through Nahum? He says he takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, if that wasn't kind of jarring enough, um, Nahum goes into some very shocking descriptions of what this looks like. Um, And the book of Nahum is, is very poetic, and so parts of it read like, almost like a children's book in like short, succinct, like, you know, two words, like size 72 font on a page for kids to read. Uh, But the content obviously is not really what you find in children's books. So just briefly, let's turn to chapter three, verses one through three. It says, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip, and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heads, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Again, this is a jarring, poetic language meant to elicit a response, emotional response at least. But this is not who God is indiscriminately, right? This is an aspect of his character, but it's an aspect of his character in response to, in the face of stubborn, rebellious, entrenched wickedness. This is who God is in response to that which is opposed to his character, to that which is evil and unjust and godless and and harmful. This is who he is to those who hate him. It's not as if he were out there just looking for an opportunity to be vengeful. No, he would rather people turn and and repent and and come into his tender embrace. He would rather forgive and welcome and bless us. As we said in our confession, whose property, you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. God delights to have mercy. Remember what God said through Jonah, towards these same people. Should I not pity Nineveh? It's a rhetorical question. He should. He wants to. Um, Paul, God uh, says through Paul that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And even here in Nahum, in these pronouncements of judgment, we find pointers to God's grace and, and goodness So in verse 3, back in chapter 1, it says, The Lord is slow to anger. Uh, Do you know that in the Bible, we we don't have a similar statement um, about God's vengeance, or sorry, about God's uh, mercy and kindness and grace, that God is slow to to show grace, hesitant and calculating and, and measured in his mercy. No, rather we're told he's rich in mercy, slow to anger, rich in mercy. We are told here that God is one who will by no means clear the guilty. 
Now that should stand out because we know if we stand back and consider the complete story of scripture that God does in fact clear the guilty. God does provide a way for the guilty to be cleared, which is why we have hope at all. God comes into his creation in the person of Jesus and does the work, takes our sin and guilt on himself at the cross. He scandalously clears the guilty, justifies the unjust. And similarly, we're told here in in chapter 1, verse uh, 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Uh, Well, again, stepping back and considering all of Scripture, who can do that? Well, Jesus can. Jesus does bear the indignation of God, endures the heat of his anger for our sin. He stands in the gap for us and bears the brunt of what our sins deserve. And so this picture of a divine warrior that we get of, of God in, in, here in Nahum and elsewhere in Scripture, um, we need to realize that in the greatest battle that God takes on, that God enters into, he goes to war against our own sin and guilt and everything that keeps us separate from him and, and draws us to himself. He defeats our greatest enemy. He doesn't just sit back and let justice have its way. He enters into his world. He suffers and dies so that his enemies can not just be saved objectively, but can be changed subjectively to be his friends, to be his beloved children. And this is good news for, um, as, as Nahum says here, for those who take refuge in him. All who would take refuge in him, even if they are among the Ninevites, Dane Ortland writes, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him. For all this resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply Open yourself up to him. This leads to our second question. Who is God to his people? So let's go back to chapter 1. We read verses 1 through 6. Verse 7, as you read it in context, is a completely unexpected verse. So let me read a a bit of 2 and then 6 and then jump into 7 so you can kind of see the connection and See this. So remember verse 2, the Lord is jealous, a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful, takes wrath on his adversaries, keeps his wrath for his enemies. Jump down to 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Now, I'm not sure what you would expect the next verse to be, but this is not what I would expect right away. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Do you, do you see what's happening here? Um, the great display of God's power and vengeance and intervention in history against his enemies, against his people's enemies, is a testimony to God's goodness. How so? 
Well, because it is working for their good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble to all who take refuge of him, refuge in him. Um, This is the main point of the book of Nahum. As I said, Nahum's name means comfort. The point of this book is uh, God's word, God's actions are a great comfort to his people. And we see this here. We see this a few other significant points in Nahum. If you go to verse 15 in chapter 1, um, it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And what is this good news that, that brings about peace? Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Again, God's stepping into history and putting an end to wicked and evil and godless regimes and individuals is good news. In a world set against God and set against all that is good and right and true, in an imp- in a oppressive and unjust world, God's justice brings peace. Um, I think this is something that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. Uh, if you go to the book of Revelation in Scripture, you see similar uh, pronouncements of of judgment coming from God against those set against him. And every time that this occurs, what happens among God's people, what happens in heaven is worship. Like the the great exalted uh, worship choruses that we get in the book of Revelation come right after like these pronouncements of judgment on on wicked um, people. Hallelujah, this is Revelation 19. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. Um, God's sense of justice and God's understanding of sin and its consequences is, is more in tune than ours. At the same time, God's mercy and compassion and kindness is greater than we can imagine and greater than we often even want. I mean, as we saw with Jonah, he's offended that God would show mercy to those people. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, we, we can be offended. We can love God's mercy towards ourselves, which reveals what we think about ourselves, but we have a hard time when it's offered to others. Finally, if this message wasn't clear enough, the last verse of Nahum um, sums it up in a, it makes, makes it clear what the point of Nahum is. So 319, uh, uh, so speaking to Nineveh, there is no easing your hurt, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. So nobody's mourning the judgment of Nineveh. Nobody outside Nineveh. Perhaps even some inside Nineveh are like, about time. Clapping their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Like, if they had a marketing campaign for Nineveh, it wasn't going well. Nobody, ha- had, nobody was convinced that it was a decent, decent city. And what the words of Nahum here and in Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture, what they are aiming to do is to help God's people feel the comfort and relief 
of all of God's power and victory and authority and jealousy working for the good of his people. For all who take refuge in him. This is how God's people are are defined in, 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 in verse 1. He knows those who take refuge in him. Th- that's, that's simply it. It's not the morally upright. It's not those who have everything together. It's not those who um, have been successful. It's not the religiously devoted. It's not the respectable. It is all those who simply turn to the Lord for refuge. And these people find God's disposition towards them radically different than do his enemies. And so let's reflect on this a little bit. What, how is God, what is God's disposition, position, attitude, heart towards his people? First of all, he is jealous for them. So we see in, in, in 1 verse 2, the Lord is a jealous God. And you might think as you read that, because it's talking about Nineveh there, you might think, well, he's jealous for his own glory uh, because the Ninevites are worshiping all these idols and he is jealous for their devotion to him alone rather than all these idols. And that, that may be there as well, but as you read on, you realize that God's jealousy here in the book of Nahum is his jealousy for his people and his jealousy for the protection and salvation and, and comfort and blessing and peace of his people. And the Ninevites, uh, they are invading and conquering both Israel to the north and then Judah to the south, and God is jealous to free his people from these oppressive um, people to the east. And so, for his people, God's jealousy and God's vengeance is something to be celebrated. If, If you are among God's people, if you belong to God, His jealousy and power and wrath and vengeance is not in the least a threat. But is in fact the source of your protection and comfort and salvation and security and joy. God's power goes to war for you. Has gone to war for you. Continues to go to war for you. We we sing the song and we're about to sing the song, Jesus Strong and Kind. We don't only need a kind God. In a world full of sin and evil, we don't only need a kind God. We need a strong God, a God who puts the full force of his energy to fight for us, a God who can have no evil or evil individuals or evil kingdoms or nations or systems or powers ultimately defeat him. Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? Um, And the great comfort of those words Uh, depends on God being both strong and kind. If God is for us, but he can't really defeat our enemies, he can't really defeat our own sin, well, that doesn't really mean much. That doesn't really give us much comfort. If God is powerful, but not good, that also puts us in a pretty scary situation. But if God is for us and he is good, who can be against us? And so what Nahum is doing and what God is doing here and elsewhere in Scripture is to help us not only understand this intellectually, not to take the position of kind of neutrality and sit back and judge and weigh God's character from afar. No, we are meant to feel the great comfort and relief of God 
being on our side, working for us, not because we deserve it, not because we've proved ourselves to him, but because he loves us and we have merely turned and embraced his love. And so you can think about it like this. When God goes to battle against everything that would harm us, the evil intent of others, the selfishness of others, our own sin and guilt and, and the consequences of that, the temptations of the devil, the unjust systems of the world. When God goes to battle against all of these things, he's not simply fighting for them, just focused on defeating them. He is fighting for you. He has us on his mind. He has our good, our peace, our protection and joy on his mind. Um, in a few weeks, we'll get into Zephaniah, and we actually preached on this a number of months ago, but Zephaniah 3.17, this comes after God has given great warnings and threats to his people, but then he says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Um, this is God's disposition towards his people, which is almost incomprehensible for us to, to grasp, that God would rejoice over us with gladness, quiet us by his love, exult over us with loud singing. So I encourage you, as you reflect on this, as you read through scripture and encounter things like this, um, feel the comfort and rest and assurance that scriptures like this are meant to convey. Um, don't let your questions about, you know, I don't understand this aspect of you, God. God, why have you, why am I among your people and not so-and-so? Don't, don't let those difficulties, which, which are real and which are questions that you can ask and bring to God, but don't let them keep you from rejoicing and resting in God's overwhelming goodness and protection and, and peace towards you. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Let's pray.